The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Lucy Poirier. Lucy grew up in Langley, BC, where her love of aviation was sparked from a young age by her mom and the Canadian Museum of Flight. At the age of 12, Lucy joined 746 Lightning Hawk Royal Canadian Air Cadets and over the next seven years obtained her glider and private pilot licenses and participated on the International Air Cadet Exchange to fly aircraft in Switzerland. Post-secondary, Lucy studied business and aviation at the University of the Fraser Valley and enrolled in the Cadet Instructors Cadre branch of the Royal Canadian Air Force to return to the Cadet program and become a glider flight instructor. While discerning which aviation career path was right for her, Lucy was encouraged by a mentor to apply to NAV Canada to become a controller. While discerning which aviation career path was right for her, Lucy was encouraged by a mentor to apply to NAV Canada and become an air traffic controller. Lucy always thought she'd be flying and had not previously considered becoming a controller, but during this application process, discovered that this was in fact the career for her. At age 19, Lucy became a VFR controller and now works in the Prince George Control Tower. In her spare time, Lucy also volunteers with Elevate Aviation as the British Columbia Wing Mentorship Program Coordinator. To quote Lucy, my passion for mentorship is inspired by and dedicated to all the mentors I've had both related to my career in aviation and in life. Without those wonderful people who encouraged and supported me and gave me opportunities to consider and grow, I would not be where I am today. I hope in my mentorship roles now to inspire and prepare the next generation of women in aviation. I truly cannot be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Lucy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for finding the time for us. I know you've been so busy over the last little while, so I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. Me too. So we'll jump right on in then. How did you get your start in aviation? Uh, I knew I wanted to be in aviation from a really young age. Um, Combination of a few things. Uh, My grandparents immigrated from the Netherlands. And when my mom finished school, she was encouraged to go and travel. And so she lived abroad for over a year. And just throughout my early years, when we would read her postcards or her letters to home, um, or see some of the photos from the places that she had traveled, it would make me really excited and want to travel and um, explore new places. And then as a kid, I played soccer near the Langley airport, and they had a big DC three plane on display right next to the highway. So every time we drive to soccer, I'd ask my mom about the airplane and I told her I wanted to be a pilot and fly to all these cool countries. And, um, and then when I was eight years old, she came home and said, I met some air cadets. And if you join this program, you can earn a scholarship to get your pilot's license. Um, and so I went home and I researched all about the air cadet program. And um, I filled out a form to join. And then when I was 12 years old, when I was old enough and uh, eligible to become an air cadet, I went to 746 Lightning Hawk Squadron in Langley. And uh, I was there for the next seven years as an air cadet. No, I think, I mean, I forget what the stat is, but it's something like 40% of Canadian pilots or even people that work in aviation in Canada were air cadets at some point. It is a fundamental, or at least it's one of the biggest avenues that people seem to sort of initially get into aviation or at least the spark starts there because where else can you go when you're a 12 year old that is really into planes? Absolutely. When I hear people in different industries talk about how they learned so much from an internship they did or a job they worked, just having that exposure to the industry before they were actually licensed or capable of doing the job. Um, that's one way that I have looked at the Air Cadet program in preparing me for my career. Um, I knew so many foundations and and basics and that's also where I met my first mentors in aviation and had my first encouragement into the industry and avenues that opened up in pursuing my goals so um it was great now you had joined the air cadets initially to get your private pilot license and through the scholarship did that come together for you Yes. So um, I did every summer, I did a different aviation camp. Um, I've obtained a glider 
pilot's license, a private pilot's license. Um, in my last year as an air cadet, I did the international air cadet exchange to Switzerland. Um, and we did lots of aviation related stuff on the trip. It was one of my first exposures to air traffic control. And, um, and then after I left the program, I actually went back for a summer and became a flight instructor on the gliders, teaching 16 year olds how to fly. Now, I mean, 16 years old, you're there ready to get your driver's license and now you're doing your gliders license. You must just feel like you're the coolest 16 year old. I could fly before I could drive. So it was, uh, it was lots of fun. I made lots of friends doing it. I don't know if, <laughs> I think people thought it was cool that I did it. Um, I don't think it really made me cool, but um, I had fun. Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair assessment. It doesn't necessarily make you cool to be part of it, but you're doing cool things. Absolutely. Um, the Air Cadet Exchange that I did in Switzerland was fun. It's some of the best flights I have ever done. We got to go gliding and I had uh, a flight that was a couple hours long over the Swiss Alps and we got to have a catered lunch with the um, Patrice Swiss, their air demonstration team, all their pilots and maintenance engineers came and had lunch with us in the hangar and we got to sit in the jets and watch them do their briefing. They did their day's briefing in English for us so we could understand. And then we got to stand on the side of the runway as they took off and they did a little mini air demonstration for us before they left for their practice for the day. And we got to fly with the military Swiss Pumas. Um, that was my first time in a helicopter. And we got to fly in an old World War II open cockpit biplane doing an aerobatic flight over the Alps. So honestly, to be like 17 years old in a different country with other young adults who just had this passion and joy for aviation from around the world um, and to share that together was one of the coolest experiences I have ever had. Um, and then we also visited their air traffic control sky guide. Um, so we got to go into their training unit and that was the first time that I got to be in an air traffic control simulator and see how the planes moved around the airport and get a little exposure to that. And that was kind of the first time that I thought that would be a really cool job. I think I could do that. That's kind of where that trip played a big role into my career. And so you sort of said that was kind of the first time you'd really been exposed to ATC. Were you actively considering that as a career or was it just something more along the lines of like, oh, this is an interesting option. If my plans don't work out exactly as I want to, I think that ATC could be maybe another facet of the industry that I'm interested in. Yeah, um, no, I was dead set on being a pilot. I had goals and aspirations and I'd gone through the whole military application. I wanted to be a search and rescue pilot with the military. So I was very tunnel vision in that um, respect. but. Um, there was an air traffic controller in my community. His sons were in the same class as my little brother. And one year in elementary school, one of the field trips they get to take is to the Boundary Bay Airport. And I was off high school that day. So I got to tag along on the field trip. And, and I ended up in a carpool with this air traffic controller. And he said, you know, I know you love aviation. If you ever need an alternative to flying, air traffic control is a great career. Um, if you want, you can come visit where I work and see what I do. So um, he was an air traffic controller in the Vancouver Control Center. And a couple of times I went and visited and I got to see what he did. And lots of his coworkers were like, oh, yeah, I used to be a pilot. And then I became an air traffic controller. And this is great. And already the foundation and experience you have with air cadets will go a long way in this career. And I remember thinking, yeah, but I'm going to be a pilot. Like, this seems great. But I don't know what you're saying or what you're doing. And I don't understand the radar screens. Like I really didn't think that it was something that I would be capable of doing. Um, and then it wasn't until a couple of years later, you know, now I had gone to Switzerland and I had seen the sky guide there and I had a little bit more exposure. I had gone for a second visit to the control center. I had been set up with some tower tours to explore it further so that when the door to the pilot career closed for me, um, you know, I had mentors that came back and said, put in an application for Nav Canada, try this route again. And, um, and then I heard back a couple of weeks later, and then my foot was in the door. And that was it for me. Now, what was it like to go through that interview and training process? When I applied, like at this point in the application, I still wasn't sure I was still a little heartbroken that I had envisioned my whole future as a pilot. 
And I didn't know now how that was going to play out for me. So um, when I had applied, I had gotten a, an email um, inviting me to come and do some more testing in-house and to proceed with the application process. Um, so I had to do an aptitude test very similar to the one that I did for the military. So I had already done a lot of prep in terms of um, my math and my English, my spatial orientation, um, knowing that I was going to be talking on the radio. I did a lot of practice with like memory and recall. You can find lots of those general assessments online to kind of help you prepare. Um, so I didn't really know what I was going into for like the testing portion of it. And it's changed lots since I've been through. But um, there was one point in the testing after a testing session where I had gotten a tour of the facilities and there was a class of air traffic controllers training in the simulator. And so I got a tour of that and I got a chance to sit down in the simulator and I got a little bit of pre-coaching and they showed me how it worked. And for that moment where I got to try the simulator, talking to airplanes, you know, speeding one up, slowing one down, who to descend, who to climb, go faster, go slower. You're, it's, it was almost like a video game. And it was the first time sitting there that I felt the gears in my head turning the way they should. I felt rhythmic. I felt organized. I felt confident. And as much as I love flying, there were lots of curveballs to that learning curve for me. Um, and it, I don't think it came as naturally as it did for some people. I love flying as a hobby, but as a career, um, I didn't know that I would like it as much. So then when I was sitting in the simulator for ATC and, you know, and I just felt that this is where I was meant to be, this is what I meant to be doing. Um, that was my aha moment for sure. So, um, and then I continued on with the process and the application and I did my interview and when I arrived for my interview, there was a plaque on the door outside of the air traffic control building that said, through these doors walk the most highly trained professionals in the world. And I kind of just let that sink in and, you know, thought about it on my way into the interview. And so, you know, my interview was great. I enjoyed it just having that conversation and, mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to talk about some of my experiences, but also learning a little bit more about the company in my interview. And at the end, I never really knew how to close an interview when they say, oh, do you have any last comments, questions or concerns? And I really wanted to finish strong in this interview. And I, it just kind of came to me and I thought, you know, this is what it says on your door. I want to be one of those highly trained professionals. Um, it was kind of that point where, you know, sitting in that simulator and I felt this is where I meant to be closing that interview saying, I want this training. I want to pursue this. This is where. I have to be, I can't fail. Um, that was another kind of aha moment for me, really solidifying that that is where I wanted to be. And this is the job that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Now, how did your interviewer react to that? I mean, that's probably a plaque that they're walking by every day too. And they're probably, it's just uh, invisible to them now. So to hear someone, an interview candidate say, I want to be one of these highly trained professionals like you, what was their response? Yeah, he stifled a laugh and said, come on, I'll give you the tour. <laughs> um, no, I mean, before I went into the interview, like, you know, I asked my mentor, I said, what can you tell me about the person that's interviewing me just to try and get, you know, a little bit more information and prepare for the interview. And some of the things that I found out, you know, he was ex-military, huge supporter of the cadet program, um, you know, and even just based off of those two things, when I was able to talk about my experiences. Um, you know, I had taken some time off for the summer that I worked flying um, and teaching cadets how to fly. That's the same summer that I did my interview. So I had flown back for the weekend to do the interview and then go back. So, you know, we got to talk about, you know, the, the teamwork and the dedication and the camaraderie that, you know, we build and how some of those experiences really translated um, into a strong skill set for air traffic control. So just being able to tie all of those things in and then finish the interview, you know, I felt confident um, that this is where I needed to be. And I think that that passion and that confidence can really translate, whether it's an interview or a job or whether you're meeting someone or speaking with them. Yeah, so that was that was just an exciting moment for me. And uh, I think he had, yeah, he had a good laugh. He appreciated it. 
I mean, you, you can't fake enthusiasm and passion for aviation. I mean, it's, it has to be genuine. And I mean, you're not going to enjoy it if, if this isn't something you truly want to do. It's, it's challenging enough, even when you love it. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned as well that you had the opportunity to do many different tower tours and even sort of a Vancouver control center, getting to go and see what air traffic controllers do and just meet some of them as well. And I, I found in my experiences, especially pre-pandemic, Anytime I would meet an air traffic controller, there were always just so much more than willing to say, oh, come up, come see what we do. We do a lot of nifty work. It's challenging and it's tricky, but it's really fun. And hey, if piloting doesn't work out for you, consider ATC. Yeah, absolutely. And they're always ex-pilots or ex-air cadets at the very least. Definitely part of it, but it's not a requirement. I've also met lots of air traffic controllers now who have come from backgrounds with no aviation experience. They do just as well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I've had people who, who say, you know, I, I really admire what you do. It sounds like a really great job. You seem to have a great career out of it, but I don't think I would be very good at it or I don't think it's possible for me. And that's kind of one of the first things that I say to people. And I said, if you take yourself out of the running, um, you're never going to get there. You know, it, it does take a certain skill set it does take a certain personality but if you're willing to put the work in and you're willing to learn and you love that environment it's a very rewarding career speaking of rewarding what is the most challenging part of ATC training and the most rewarding I think the most challenging part of the training uh, is just it's a, a lot of information in a very compact course in a very compact time frame um, so I think for most of the time that I was in training and, and studying, um, you know, I had a, a good support system and you know, that went a long way because I was going to school. I was coming home. I was studying. I was getting a good night's sleep. I was back at school. And then on my weekends, um, my classmates and I, we were going to work on our days off. We were in the simulator, we were practicing and preparing. So I didn't have much of a social life at that time. And uh, it was eat, sleep, study, and prepare. So I'd, I would say that's probably one of the most challenging aspects uh, of it. But if you have a good support and you have a good uh, good work ethic, good study habits, and uh, a willingness to do it, it's um, very rewarding at the end. Um, you know, training is one of the hardest parts of the job because you learn everything. And then once you go to your tower, you kind of specialize in the information you need to know for that specific airport. So I'd say training is probably the most stressful um, portion of, you know, my career journey so far that I've been through. Um, But when you qualify and you get a license and you see your course mates go through that, um, when you get your first assignment and you go to your tower and you start training on site there, um, that's been so rewarding. Uh, you know, I remember the first shift that I worked on my own, it was morning shift and I got to just sit and drink my coffee and watch the sun come up. And then my day started and, um, all of the pilots that I started flying with when I had initially started a flying career, they had all kind of gotten into their first flying jobs the same time I started as air traffic control. And so then all of a sudden a plane would be flying into my airport and they would go, is that Lucy? Lucy, are you on the radio? Are you my controller? <laughs> so, and then, you know, working at Prince George Airport, it's just, it's um, it's a smaller airport. I, I do know a lot of the pilots that fly in, even if it's just by um, the aircraft ident or the voice that I hear or the one pilot that says good evening when it's eight o'clock in the morning or, you know, like everybody's kind of got their mannerisms over the radio and you start to recognize who's who and, um, and you kind of develop a bit of that rapport if you're talking to the same pilots every day. And, uh, and um, yeah, so that's been really nice. And then I just think like overall in my career, um, rewarding has just been the team that I get to work with here in Prince George. I have an awesome team. And, uh, you know, I, I started in Prince George here when I was 19. So my staff, like I moved away from home. I had no family here. I didn't know anyone. Uh, when I found out I was going to Prince George, I packed up my car and I had to look it up on a map. I wasn't even quite sure where I was going. And uh, 
so then when I got here, um, I was really just embraced by the staff. I was really supported by them. And now that I've been here for five years, they're all like family to me. So that's been, uh, that's been a very rewarding journey for me. And the career itself, uh, one of the things that I love most is that I go to work, I plug in, I do the job, I plug out and I go home and enjoy the rest of my life. It's not something that I have to take home with me or worry about or think about. And so when I'm on vacation or I go home to visit my family, I'm not pulling out my laptop. I'm not finishing a paper. I'm not checking a last minute email. I get to spend my time with my family and just be present with them. So yeah, it's a very rewarding career that way. I mean, work-life balance in aviation cannot be understated. And it really does seem like within air traffic control that because you physically have to plug in and plug out, that that's it. Once you're not there, you have that balance, you have that boundary. And how how fortunate are you to have found what is clearly the the gem job <laughs> that gives you that Very. aviation? Yeah, I um I didn't know really. I mean, that was something that my mentor said to me when I started, and I didn't really understand that concept at first when I was 16 and he told me that for the first time. And then when I started training, we showed up for our first day and we'd been there since seven o'clock in the morning and around three, the instructor just walks out of the room and my classmates and I look at each other and we go, does anybody know if this is like a Monday to Friday thing? Is it, does it finish at three? Do we finish at five? Does anybody know if we're getting paid or how much we'll get paid once we start this job? Like we all realized we had no idea and we just wanted to be there. That is the job we wanted to work. And, and I just think everything that I've have found out about the company, about the work, um, just every corner it takes. I, my coworkers will tell me something and I'll go, really? That's a thing? This job is great. <laughs> How often are you finding the news? Like, wow, that's amazing. I love this. Like I, I can, I mean, I, I don't work in aviation at the moment and that, that is not my experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel, you know, like this, this career path wasn't intentional for me in the beginning. Um, and so to kind of fall into a career that has been perfect for me, um, it's, it's been amazing. Um, you know, and then I, in the beginning when I really had like dedicated myself, okay, this is, this is where I need to be, um, you know, even before I knew all of these extra things or, um, after I'd gone through the interview process, human resources sent me an email and I was, I was refreshing my email every day, waiting to hear from them if I was going to be placed onto a course or accepted into training. And I get an email and I'm so excited to open it. And it says, thank you for your consideration. We encourage you to go and continue building your life experience and keep us in mind for future opportunities. And, you know, and I was 19 at the time. So I'm thinking, oh, they think I'm just too young to do this job or, you know, something along those lines. And I was, I was crushed because I, I had, you know, at first I wasn't sure. And then I don't done all this work. And then I really had convinced myself this was where I was meant to be and that I was going to put all this work in and this was going to be my career and uh, that I wasn't being accepted. And then five minutes later, they emailed me back and she said, whoops, sorry, my intern sent the wrong email. You're going to start <gasps> next month. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so um, just five minutes of devastation. Yeah. Just five minutes of devastation. Like, you know, the tears were coming and uh, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it was... <laughs> It was a journey. So now just, you know, every time that I, you know, find out that like, oh, I'm entitled to vacation. What are days off? Or, you know, um, I'm a shift worker. So, you know, right now our schedule in Prince George, we work four days on four days off. Um, that is like, well, what am I going to do with four days off? I've never had four days off in my life. Or, you know, oh, I, I have benefits. I, I can go to the dentist. I can get a massage. <laughs> Just little things like that, right? Like, you know, I, in starting this career so young into my adulthood, um, yeah, it just, it was kind of a shock to me, um, but I love it. You also mentioned sort of the training and just how it's basically like drinking from a fire hose. How long yes. is the training? 
on average? Uh, it depends. Um, there's different streams of air traffic control you can go into. So I am a tower controller, which means I control from a tower on site at the airport. That training in total could be anywhere from 10 to 18 months. And then we have IFR center controllers. They work out of there's seven major centers across the country. Um, it's more like a warehouse, a dark room with lots of radar screens all over the room. And they're just watching the airplanes on radar screens, little targets moving around uh, and talking to them without seeing the actual airplane. That takes about two years of training. Um, and uh, then there's flight service. They're not um, controllers, but it's an advisory service that is more remote locations, remote, remote airports. And they provide advisory on weather and traffic and anything going on at the airport for pilots. And that takes about, I think, 10 months as well of training. Um, so for me, I did my first five months uh, in the school where I learned all of the book information and I worked on a simulator. And then I came to Prince George and I did another five months on the job training with an instructor. And then since then, uh, I've gone and gotten in on the job instructor ticket. And I've actually been able to train my first student. So that's been an interesting experience on the other side. It's like, I've been doing this long enough to teach someone else how to do it now. That's pretty cool. Very cool. And even just sort of thinking about the idea that there are simulators for air traffic control. I mean, of course there has to be, but what, what is it like? What do, I guess, what are you simulating other than just talking to aircraft and getting them to interact with you? I guess, I, how do those work? So um, when you walk into the simulator room, you'll have a lot of the similar equipment that we use uh, in the tower. And then there are, I don't know, it depends on the simulator itself, but, you know, six TVs side by side so that you can see the screen and they all connect to each other um, like an airport. And so it simulates being in a tower with 360 degree windows. And so when you look at these TV screens, it's like looking out the windows, um, you've got multiple runways. Um, and the simulator simulates basically everything that you'll learn on the job as well. Um, vehicles that need to go out and inspect and maintain the runway, aircraft that are coming in of different sizes, different speeds, coming in for different runways. How do you sequence them? How do you anticipate those conflicts of, um, well, this aircraft is far away, but going faster. This airplane is closer and going slower. At some point, they're going to collide if we leave them on this predicted track. So what are we going to do now that's going to separate them or get them onto the correct runway? What decisions do we have to make? So it teaches you really to look at that big picture and what kind of aircraft that you're going to be dealing with. So the simulator really functions the same way that sitting down at my job does. Aside from the fact that the voice recognition software needs to come a little further than it has. <laughs> Just like talking to Siri? Yeah, it's... Um, when I trained, it was like old U.S. military voice recognition software. And so it had a really hard time recognizing a female voice versus mm. my male counterpart. And so really, like sometimes in the simulator, I would tell a plane, cleared to land. And they'd be, okay, pulling up. And then this little airplane in the simulator would try and pull up, but it'd be too low to the ground. So you would just watch it stall and fall and crash and create a big ball of fire. And oh. Okay, did I do I still pass that run? <laughs> yeah, it's like I I I told them what to do. The fact that they didn't understand me in the sim, it's one thing. Yeah, so it was one more hurdle to overcome. And my instructors would always say, "Well, it builds resiliency, and you'll need that for the job." So I always love how you find like, and you don't know them or you don't see them until you have someone that a program wasn't designed for. Um, going through it. So of course, the old US military uh, ATC stuff, they probably didn't think that there would be a young woman, a teenager yep. doing that role. And they probably didn't think about a teenage girl's voice. Well, and I had two female instructors too. So anytime they would try and jump in to try and correct what the airplane was doing, all three of us would be there trying to deepen our voices and <laughs> sound really manly for the software to pick up our voice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm always mindful of how my voice sounds on the radio. If I'm calling a terminal here, I always make sure that I sound like, you know, someone that you'd want to fly with. But I, there's that you need to have that calm voice that sort of like, no, I, I got this. But yeah, never, never manly. That's never something I'm trying to <laughs> trying to sound like, I guess it's yeah, different in the sim. 
Well, and I have a lot of pilot friends now. So we've actually had this discussion that, uh, you know, I say, what do I sound like on the radio? What what are you picturing when you fly in and, and you hear me and, and, and whatever? Because in, in your mental eye, like you, you sometimes make a picture of, you know, people that you can't hear. And I've done the same for pilot. But, uh, and they go, you're very monotone. You don't sound like you have any personality whatsoever. And you don't stray from like standard phraseology. So if you're ever thinking about that from a controller, they probably have just come out of the simulator where it only accepts very specific words, um, you know, keeping it as short as possible. And, and yeah, having that very monotone, consistent voice, one, helps with the clarity for getting the instructions across and and two has taken many months and years to develop. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Controllers are always fun. I always enjoy speaking to controllers. I think that's because I started training at um, an airport that uh, was controlled. So mm-hmm. I got so used to being like, okay, we have like, uh, we have the ATIS, we have clearance delivery, we have ground, then we have tower, then we have terminal, and then we can go to the practice area. And that was just normal to me so I find that um, I mean the isn't it always the way pilots that were trained at towered airports don't like to go to uncontrolled airports and vice versa and it's mm-hmm. because we're we like what we know and I like having a controller to talk to if something's going sideways absolutely yeah now what does an average day or shift look like at the Prince George airport knowing full well that no two days in aviation are the same Depends on the shift. Like right now our shifts vary. So um, at the beginning of my week, I'll kind of start with my evening shifts that go from late afternoon to closing. Um, And then I, in the middle of my week, I go to a midday shift um, from 9.30 till seven o'clock at night. So that kind of covers the really busy portions of the day. And then uh, we always end our week on an opening shift. We open the tower and then finish uh, in the late afternoon. So um, yeah, depending on the shift, it can be different, but basically I go into work, I sign in, I read all the documentations, um, like anything that's changed overnight. Um, I look into seeing if any of the systems or equipment have changed overnight or say something like is not working that day, um, or something is now working again. And, um, so I get all of that information before I sit down and, uh, then I talk to the controllers who are currently working. I look over their shoulder, see what they've got going on on the screen, try and build that mental picture in my head so that when we do a handover, um, it's pretty seamless. And so then when I'm ready, I tell the controller, okay, I'm ready to go. And they tell me everything that they have from um, what runway we're using that day, what airplanes they have in the air, what airplanes they have on the ground, any vehicles that are active out on the runways, if we're doing snow removal or grass cutting or whatever operations are happening around the airport that day, um, any special information, um, you know, if a pilot's given a report of bad weather in this area or how the runway condition is. Um, so I get all of that information from them. And, uh, once I have that picture and it's filled in any gaps of my mental picture, we can ask questions if we need to. Then we hand it over. I sit down in position and then I take control. In Prince George, we've got lots of different operations that happen. We have a, um, we have a flight school. We have uh, airline, commercial airliners, uh, Central Mountain Air, Encore, uh, Jazz, Pacific Coastal, lots of those guys that fly in and out. We are a cargo hub, so we get lots of um, cargo and mail and packages that come in and out. Um, We have lots of chartered flights because we are the last major airport um, in northern BC. There's no control towers north of us uh, until you hit um, yeah, until you hit the Northern Territories. So all of the, um, say like First Nation um, reserves or any small Northern communities that are basically fly in, fly out communities. We have aircraft that go, um, you know, if it's like a, a project site, we have workers that fly in and out. We have medical supplies that get flown in and out. Um, and um, so that's what, so we have lots of charters. We have medevac base. So we have aircraft and helicopters that go in and out um, doing medical and life-saving flights. So either repositioning people to bring them to Prince, the hospital in Prince George, or if it's more critical down to Vancouver, uh, we have helicopter bases. So we have lots of helicopter training in the spring and in the fall. And then all summer, they're usually out fighting fires. 
And then we have a fire base in Prince George. So come summertime, we usually get an anywhere between another 15 to 25 dedicated aircraft just for fighting fires that come in and out. So it can be a very busy airport, especially during the summer when all of those um, different units start functioning together. Um, so it's a very fun, fast-paced airport to work at. And when I say fast-paced, because some people go Prince George, well, we have busy hours uh, and then we have some very quiet stretches. So, um, you know, we might not be as busy as some of the international airports, but uh, we do have a lot going on. Um, so yeah, my day is just um, working whatever traffic comes along my way. And like you said, every day can be a little bit different. Gosh, yeah. To me, Prince George, I was initially thinking it's a remote airport. It's not going to be that like it's busy, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that there was all these different types of operations that they have. Approximately how many movements does the Prince George airport have in any given year? Yeah, so, I want to say, I want to say 40,000, but I could be off on that number. Um, but one interesting fact is that in all of Canada, um, we did one of the best pre and during COVID rates. So, you know, like somewhere like Vancouver that might have only done 20% of their pre-COVID movements. Actually, during COVID, we maintained the level of traffic we were working. And actually, like our past December was actually busier than December of 2019. Well, because of our medevac bases, because of our fire base, because of our helicopters and all of the essential operations that we provide for northern BC and beyond, we actually maintained one of the best rates in Canada for our pre and then during COVID levels. That's something to be very proud of. Yeah, it was cool. Now, of course, BC, Northern BC, the first thing, or one of the first things that comes to my mind is forest fires. And as you mentioned, there is a aerial fire suppression base. How Mm -hmm. are operations overall impacted when you do have active forest fires in the vicinity and the teams going out to respond? Yeah, it can, um, it can be pretty busy. Um, One of the things like when I was training, we had a very busy fire season and we also had airport construction going on at the same time. So one of the things that, you know, we're fortunate to have in Prince George is we have three runways. And so one thing that we can do to kind of mitigate the impact that the firecraft have on us is by using all of our surface space. And, um, you know, we have a larger control zone. So normally a control zone would be three, maybe even five miles around an airport. We control seven miles outside of uh, where the airport is. So we've got lots of airspace and we've got lots of surface space at the airport to work around. Um, That being said, typically at an airport, you'll have somebody working ground and somebody working tower, maybe even more controllers than that. In Prince George, we have one person working all the airplanes at all times at the same time. So Uh, Unless it gets too busy to handle, we do have the ability to split, but sometimes the way we're laid out, it's better for one person to have one solid plan and figure it out as they go. So especially in the summertime, uh, you know, if it's a very listen to the radio, wait your turn, then push the talk um, because there's a lot going on. And sometimes we have two or three planes calling at the same time. And if I can hear them all, I just start getting to each one. Um, But when, especially when we have lots of dedicated aircraft for fires sometimes by the time we roll all of them out and the last plane departs the first one's already coming back again so i think of it as like a big circle of aircraft coming in and going out and in between that we have to fit well it's summertime so our training aircraft and you know our regular summer traffic and our commercial flights so it's really kind of becomes more of that fun video game of Um, where am I going to fit everyone? And you have lots more decisions to make. And the earlier you make those decisions and the earlier you make your plan, the more time you have to adjust and to adapt. Um, So yes, it's a very, very fun, fast paced environment in the summertime. But then as soon as you have, you know, say runway construction or paving or um, crack sealing or anything like that happening at the airport and they close some of those surfaces or they block access to some of the places now, well, now you still have to work the same amount of traffic. And um, so you have to figure out how to make that work, right? And, and our priorities are, um, you know, safety first and then efficient. So how can we 
now we've got a safe operation. How do we make it faster? How do we make it more efficient? How do we get people where they need to go? Now, as an air traffic controller, what is one thing you wish all pilots knew? I, I try to tell as many people as I can to remember that controllers are there to provide a service for pilots. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, especially having a lot of, you know, friends that have kind of gone through um, early pilot careers as I was starting at Nav Canada, they would kind of come and ask me questions on the side. You know, or I remember one story of someone saying, oh, we were flying through Vancouver airspace and a controller gave me an instruction and I acknowledged it. And then I had to go look it up in the book because I didn't quite understand what they were saying. And I just told them, the controller is there to provide a service for you. If you were lost or if you didn't understand or if something isn't the way you expected it to go, ask. Because, you know, if, if we're working and we have that bigger mental picture, you know, we try and pass as much information that's relevant to that pilot. But if there's something more that you need, or if you need a little extra help finding your way, or if something doesn't seem right to you, just ask, just clarify. Um, you know, we, we have standard phraseology, we have instructions, we have all these things, but we also have plain language. So that if something isn't getting across or the message isn't getting across, we can explain it to you in other terms. Or, you know, I've had pilots go out in weather that was worse than they expected and then have turned around and said, I need help. Well, I have six different tools or 10 different tools that I can then turn around and say, okay, now that I know that this isn't going your way, here's what we can do about it. Here's how I can help you. This is what I can do for you. So I think that's something that's really important for you know, especially pilots that are starting out, but I mean, even commercial pilots all the way to the top, I've given extra information to or extra explanation to, um, or why, why I've given an instruction or why something is the way it is when there's time or, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I just, you know, we work as a team, you know, it's not just the controllers. It's not just the pilots. It's, you know, all everyone that's in the aviation industry, we work together to create a safe environment and make sure everybody gets home at the end of the day. So yeah, just ask. And when an emergency is declared by a pilot, what's the response on the air traffic controllers end if it's declared, I guess, on a, a towered frequency? I mean, it depends on the situation, like what my reaction is going to be. Um, but one, like declaring an emergency, it's going to give you the priority and it's going to give me the ability to give you that priority. So I can clear airplanes out of the way. I can clear the runway to make sure you can turn back and land safely. Um, and then again, depending on the type of emergency, um, it, you know, triggers me calling the appropriate um, authorities or essential services or units or to have the fire truck standing by, um, you know, and then the paperwork that we write up afterwards is just saying, hey, this is an unusual occurrence that happened today. And that's really just to keep track of. So if anybody goes to look back or if it becomes an investigation or something like that, all of the information, all of our notes are there um, for people to go back, look at and read uh, if necessary. Yeah. And then every, every emergency that I've worked so far has been different in its own way too. So we just work together and do the best we can and get the planes back safe. But ultimately, sort of, I guess, in declaring an emergency, you're acknowledging you as a pilot, hey, I need help, and also gives you, the controller, the ability to make helping me, for example, a priority. For sure. Uh, as a pilot, if you think you may have an emergency, but you don't want to declare one, please declare one so we don't have to do it for you, because we will, if the situation warrants it. Um, yeah, but it just, it gives us different rules and different abilities and then different tools open up to us that we can use to help you. So given that you have a background in both uh, glider flying and flying, I mean, small single engine aircraft, how do you think that influences the way that you approach being in a traffic controller and vice versa? Uh, well, the foundations were great in helping me start my career, but uh, I really, once I started controlling, it actually made me more comfortable flying because I felt like when I was flying, I really only learned half the picture. And now I feel like I've learned the other half. And, um, and so I think it's just given me one more patience with training aircraft, 
and having that ability to go that extra step to explain or to help or to know when someone's solo versus when an instructor's on board or when to ask, go fast, keep it in close. Like, you know, can I, can I squeeze this plane in front of that plane or do I let the efficiency side on this one go, keep everything safe, give that student some more time to get down on the runway. So it does, it factors into my decision um, making a little bit just from that understanding point of view. Um, And then also just, you know, again, my ability that, you know, when I am talking to friends or family or whoever that are pilots or in my mentorship roles um, to just give some of that perspective or to encourage people to say, go visit your tower, go talk to your controllers. If you, if you're too scared to ask them something on the radio, go up and visit or get to know them. Or when you land, call them on the phone, you know, whatever it is, right. So that you can pull into that same picture of we're working together as a team to create a safe environment for everyone. And I think even back to, again, my early training days at a big international airport. And I remember, I guess the the tower must've been told like, Hey, some of the first solos of this cohort of students are starting to happen. And it felt like for a little while, if you were the student that was on the radios only and your instructor was just there, they usually get a question of like, oh, is this your first solo? And you were there thinking like, oh, they're so excited for me. And no, I realized that they're trying to sort of say how much of a risk, how much work am I going to need to put into this plane to make sure that they're fine. But it was fun in the moment to think like, wow, they're just cheering me on as opposed to, oh, they, they want to know how much help I might need. No, I also, you know, I, I'm cheering you on. I'm, you know, going there, like, yeah, congratulations on your first solo. That was great. You know? Um, but yeah, from, you know, the controller viewpoint is if I know you don't know something, I can do something about it and I can help you. But if I don't know that you don't know, it creates a problem mm-hmm. for everyone. So you mentioned the different mentorship roles that you have. And on your own time, you volunteer with Elevate Aviation as the mentorship and programs lead for the BC Wing. How did you first get involved with Elevate? Um, my manager now went to an international um, women's air traffic control conference uh, a number of years back. And she met Kendra Kincaid, who is the founder of Elevate Aviation there. And at the time, they were promoting cross-country tours and getting people interested in them. And so she asked my manager, would you be willing to host or have uh, one of these cross-country tours at the Prince George Airport? And my manager was just switching roles and taking on a lot at the time. But she said, you know, I've got a young lady that um, started here a couple of years back. And it sounds like something she would love to be involved in. So my manager came back and she said, Lucy, do you want to host in a cross-country tour at the Prince George Airport? And I said, sure. What's that? (laughs) So kind of from there, um, I got involved and I met some of the women from across the country involved with Elevate Aviation. and. In 2019, I held my first cross-country tour. So um, I went to a bunch of high schools and um, girl guides and cadet programs, just any way that I could reach out to young women, even the university and the colleges here in Prince George. And I talked about, you know, careers in aviation, and I invited them to come to the airport for this one day. Um, And in the morning, we had a couple of speakers talk about um, women talking about their careers in aviation in different fields. And we had a catered lunch. And then in the afternoon, we got to go and tour some of the facilities at the airport. So we went and visited a helicopter hangar and a maintenance engineering hangar. They got to come up and see the tower and the maintenance and fire hall and the airport operations and business side of the airport. So that was a really cool experience for me because afterwards I had all these young women come up to me and be like, I I didn't, I didn't know about all these careers or I didn't know it was possible. And then for me, even in hosting this tour, I got to meet a lot of women around the airport. Um, the Our tower is separate from the terminal building. So I don't often go down there and I don't often get an opportunity to meet other people that work at the Prince George Airport with me. But in doing this tour, I actually found out that we have a lot of women in the Prince George Airport. In fact, every base manager is a woman in Prince George for the airlines, for the tower, for one of the helicopter companies. So that was kind of a neat thing for me to find out. And I'm actually quite, I'm friends with quite a few of them now. Um, so that was, 
that was a fun year for me. And then I was just interested. So I thought, okay, well, you know, what else can I do? How can I get more involved? So that year I went to the fundraising gala that Elevate hosts in Edmonton that year. And I got to meet more people. I got to hear the Inspire features, women in aviation talk about their careers and presentations. And it was just a fun night of socializing and meeting new people. And and then last year, um, we were expanding and just growing some of the programs. And they were looking for a person to take over the mentorship program for the BC wing. And so that kind of fit right up my alley with my experience with air cadets and with teaching and with having mentors in my past. Um, I thought that that would be a really neat role to take on. So now I get to pair um, young ladies who are looking for mentors in the aviation world in BC. And I get to pair them with women that are in careers in aviation. And I get to talk to them and find out a little bit about them, where they're at in their training or their careers. And the more I learn about all these unique opportunities, the more I'm just so wowed. And for myself, I love it because after I got settled in my career and my training, I thought, you know, where can I volunteer in a meaningful way? How can I build a community for myself? And that was a that was a big one, um, especially, you know, moving away from home pretty young and having to start over in a community where I knew no, no one. I had to build that for myself. And so when I got involved with Elevate Aviation, it created that community of women for me that, you know, um, in all these programs, the more I got involved, the more I learned, the more I connected with people. Um, throughout COVID, we had um, Zoom presentations going on that I got to learn about, again, even more careers, but just people and their lives in general. And uh, we, the Elevate hosted a master leadership class. So actually I've attended two of them where they brought in different leaders from their field, not necessarily in aviation, but, you know, public speakers, personal coaches, um, CEOs of big companies or airlines. And um, just to hear like their perspective on different topics or on leadership or just how even we're connecting in this new world of COVID and online. And, um, and so, you know, those master leadership classes, we started with a presentation and we got to ask one-on-one questions with the guest speaker that day. And then at the end of the night, um, the woman that participated in this group, we all just got to chat, talk about our week, talk about our careers, talk about what went right, what went wrong. And for me, it was just such a special way to learn how to connect again and to feel a part of a community that was um, in this industry that I was so passionate about. So um, yeah, I'm just, I feel really fortunate that um, I found Elevate Aviation and that now I get to be involved with it. And now I get to talk about Elevate as much as I talk about my career and I get to help, you know, young women connect with people. I didn't have a lot of role models that were women in aviation careers when I started at 12, but now I do. And um, I'm really excited to help others that have that same passion find their way. You know, Elevate is amazing at creating that community. It was the first place for me that I felt wholly welcomed in aviation. And I think they've done a phenomenal job at keeping all the volunteers within Elevate connected and um, made to still feel included, even though we're, I mean, all across Canada now, not just even in Edmonton or just Alberta anymore. It's it's the nationwide. And yeah, I mean, being able to connect with everyone and make you still feel like you're part of the team and have events to to spend time together, check in, see how everyone's weeks are going that they've done a phenomenal job of that throughout the pandemic. And it was, um, I've also did one of the master classes, and it was a great way to feel connected to women at all different ages and stages of their career. And to just, I guess, sort of be connected at a time when connection really mattered, just sort of early in the pandemic, people really needed to still feel like there was a way to be connected with other people. And Elevate did that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? There are a number of people that I admire, but um, 
I'm going to say Kendra Kincaid, who founded Elevate Aviation. And for many reasons, but one thing that I really love about Kendra is that ever since I've started volunteering and being around Elevate Aviation, um, you know, Kendra is so passionate about this organization that she started, but she's more passionate about the people in it, the people that are involved and the people that it helps. And she's one of those women that will remember your name and will remember interesting facts or the things that are going on in your life. So that even if you haven't talked for a couple of months, um, you know, and you pick up a project and we're, you know, we're connecting with her. Um, she always starts with the person and, I really love that. And I think that's one of the things that has made her so effective in being able to build an organization um, that is a platform for women supporting women in this industry. Um, because it, it starts with that personal connection. It starts with that mentorship. And uh, I think the strides that, you know, she has, I don't want to say that she has made, the organization has made, but, you know, because of her, she's got this really special leadership quality and um that you know that has inspired lots of volunteers to come and to stay with the program um but just really has that vision for helping people and um and you know she's also an air traffic controller so for me a lot of the times when we have conversations um you know she's been a mentor for me or she's helped me through some situations that I found in my career or you know, I've been able to, you know, bounce ideas off of her, ask questions about that. And she's so open and personable and approachable. And, um, and I just, I, when I participate with Elevate Aviation, and when I think about, you know, every time I connect a young woman with a mentor, I think like this was her vision. And, you know, she's so involved with it. And um, yeah, I, I really admire her for the work that uh, she's done. No, one of the reasons I love Kendra is that she has this uncanny ability to make you feel, even if she's only speaking to you for five minutes, like you were the most important person she spoke to that day. And she, as you said, remembers everything about everyone. She's great to sort of catch up with, uh, even just quickly in passing. And I think, as you said, that's what makes her so effective is that she puts people first and really cares and really does not understand how cool she is which I think is why she's so accessible. She doesn't understand that she's a big deal. Absolutely. And, you know, like, you know, there's all these people or figures to admire, but she's such, you know, she's a real world person for me. She's someone that's here and now in my life that, you know, I can look up to and these, these little ways that, you know, she does make you feel like the most important person in the world. That's something that it's like, in a way, it's a way of mentoring me being like, well, I can achieve that too. And it, you know, it's the same, it's the premise for all of Elevate Aviation, you know, women supporting women. Well, okay, like you hear you have somebody in an aviation career helping out somebody just starting their career in aviation. So it's the same thing. It's, you know, people like me being able to say like, I can make that change or that's something that I can do too, or that's an effort that I can make. So I think, you know, ever since I started this volunteer journey, it's just impacted, um, you know, just my community outside of work and how I want to spend and dedicate those hours that I'm not at work. And um, yeah, so I just really admire her. She does set an incredible example. Yeah. Now, what advice did you have for someone considering a career as an air traffic controller? I would say do your research. See if you can find somebody that's, um, that is an air traffic controller or that works uh, in the industry. Um, find yourself a mentor. You can even do that through the Elevate Aviation page. If you know you say you're interested in air traffic control, I will connect you with an air traffic controller, even if it's me. And um, because then you really find out what the job is like. Um, post COVID, I would really encourage anyone to go and visit a tower, visit a control center, see what it's like. If that's the kind of environment that you enjoy, or the job you could see yourself doing, and um, and just get involved. And then from there. Just go through the application, see where life goes. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your aviation career so far? I think for me, my favorite memories and highlights are going to be the people that I work with. You know, I, I said it earlier, but my staff is one of the best staff. They're some of the most incredible people that I've ever worked with. And even if I go to another tower, they're always going to be my first unit and my first family and my home away from home. 
um, you know, whether I've been sick or a surgery or something exciting in my life, um, you know, whether it's my coworkers or their wives or their families, um, you know, whether sending text messages or bringing by coffees or dropping off groceries or, hey, what can I do for you? Or how can I help? Or come over for dinner or come have a drink. It's, they've really just have been some of the most supportive people in the world. And, you know, we're a small unit. So over the last five years that I've been with them, we've gone through all sorts of life events together and been there for each other and still show up to work and keep it a safe day. So, um, yeah. Well, how lucky are you to have found that right off the bat? Very. (laughs) Now, before we wrap up today, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, so I can be reached at Lucy at elevateaviation.ca if anyone is interested in the Elevate Aviation Mentorship Program um, or wants to find out more information about Elevate or air traffic control, you can reach me there. We will be sure to have that link in the episode description for our listeners. Lucy Poirier, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.